Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Preventing the spread of coronavirus has turned millions of Americans into homebodies, an audience eager for comfort, entertainment, and connection through online memes and TikTok humor. It's completely fine to be joking about coronavirus. We need something to kind of bring us together and create a sense of community uh, and levity. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, we take a look at where two viral phenomena converge, how memes and internet humor are shaping public response to the coronavirus, and what those responses say about human behavior in times of stress and uncertainty. And as we find creative ways to stay connected in the age of social distancing and self-quarantines, a new PBS documentary focuses on bonds formed through adversity. East Lake Meadows, a public housing story, pulls back the curtain on one of Atlanta's most infamous housing projects and focuses on personal stories. They were good friends, and they had dreams and hopes just like anybody else. They just happened to live in the projects. That's all coming up. First, the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Social distancing has become the new normal. With borders closing, shelter-in-place orders in California, lockdowns in Europe, and the Trump administration's new guidelines to limit gatherings, millions of Americans are shuttering indoors and spending a lot of time in front of a screen. And the memes have flourished. That's from a viral video of Italians on lockdown in Sicily singing on their balconies, a heartwarming scene that was quickly overdubbed and parodied on TikTok and Twitter. What does online meme culture reveal about how we're processing anxiety over an unprecedented pandemic in the digital world? Virtually with us, Dr. Andre Brock, associate professor at Georgia Tech. He's studying digital culture and joining me on Skype. Andre, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Also via Skype, we have Emma Gray Ellis, a staff writer at Wired, specializing in internet culture and propaganda. She recently wrote an article called, Is It Okay to Make Coronavirus Memes and Jokes for Wired? And she's speaking with us from Portland, Oregon. Emma, welcome. Thank you so much. Emma, it seems like ages ago that we were more focused on picking a song to wash our hands with than staying indoors. And that's kind of where all these coronavirus memes began, at least here. Notably this one from a Vietnamese PSA about hand-watching with a catchy song and dance. The dance became a TikTok craze and was featured on John Oliver's Last Week Tonight. What Emma made that go viral over other hand-washing PSAs? Well, I think the Ministry of Health thought very carefully about how they were selecting uh, the song. It's a song that was already quite popular in Vietnam, and they worked with a dancer to make a dance challenge to go along with it, which, especially in a social media environment so dominated by TikTok recently, was, was basically a recipe for success. Andre, I've seen memes that seem to promote the CDC's message, like this one from TikTok user Catherine A. Ellis with a parody of Roddy Rich's song, The Box. So just stay inside your home, social distance, wash your hands and wipe your phone, keep your senses. What kind of positive effects can we see in meme culture's reaction to a crisis? Meme culture tends to broadcast 
messages which may be in some sense disruptive or upsetting, but in ways that people can attach onto them and find some sort of pleasure or even release in them. And so, uh, for instance, the TikTok you just played, uh, the young woman took a song that's hugely popular, similar, similar to the Ministry of Vietnam, and managed to write some clever lyrics which repurposed it in a way which weren't demeaning, which were approachable, which spoke to the moment. And I think meme culture does that overall really well. It's funny to think of that as a form of communication that's so predominant. Right now, I see a lot of people posting recommendations from the CDC or ideas to stop the spread of coronavirus, which people may or may not read. But then you can send 10 memes to 10 friends and get all kinds of reactions. So what does that mean, Andre, for the spread of information? Mostly that memes tend to draw upon shared cultural commonplaces and uh, for the for a large part of it, they draw on shared networks. So the, it's a group of people, your friends and your family are usually a group of people who will understand where your humor is coming from. And in return, their friends and family will have maybe not the same understanding, but a similar one. Where memes become huge and become immensely taken up is when that initial content actually turns out to be relatable to many more people than the original user could have even imagined. While mm -hmm. there are many deliberate memes, I find that many memes which were not as deliberate have somehow become also influential in helping people understand how to deal with this virus. Not deliberate, meaning that some creative person just put something together. Uh, exactly. Memes often do poke fun at real life or satirize real life, not always in positive ways. Like we saw at the beginning of this crisis, a lot of face mask memes. And that's something that you pointed to in your article, Emma, including those stirring panic to buy face masks, which the Surgeon General and others have urged us not to do and actually have caused a shortage for healthcare workers. So, Emma, what are some other concerns of meme culture during a time of crisis like this? Meme culture is often you're just getting a snippet of time or an image or a phrase uh, divorced of its context. And the risk of that is that it can be misinterpreted. And so... The internet's penchant for irony and satire has created some misinformation during this outbreak. One that comes to mind that was quite dangerous was someone joking about curing coronavirus by gargling with bleach, which you can imagine if someone took it seriously would be extremely harmful. The other negative outcome that we've seen is that a bunch of the memes have traded on ethnic humor uh, and racial humor, which is offensive, uh, obviously, um, but it can also lower people's inhibitions against committing acts of violence against the group that they're joking about, which considering that we're already seeing increased threats against Asian Americans in particular is something to take quite seriously. Coronavirus has killed thousands worldwide at this time. In your article, which is called, Is It Okay to Make Coronavirus Memes and Jokes? You spoke to a number of people about this. I'm wondering where you landed. You know, I think that this sort of dark humor is kind of the last ditch effort of, of your brain to lift the mood a little bit. With the, with the exception of the two caveats that I, that I mentioned, racial humor and misinformation, it's completely fine to be joking about coronavirus. We need something to kind of bring us together and create a sense of community uh, and levity. There's not much to joke about, so you joke about what's happening. And, and so I think that it's made people feel um, a little bit more human in a time when it's, we're in a really unusual and unfortunate situation. 
A lot of people are drawing on how people are panicking, you know, buying up all the toilet paper that they can carry out of fear. Let's hear from one video. This is two violinists playing the song from the part when the ship is going down in the film Titanic, but in an empty toilet paper aisle in a store. What is the role then of addressing fear and panic here? Is it mocking panic? Um, I think Emma referred to it as people's dark humor and satire. And I think that's a really perfect understanding of uh, how we respond to events that rupture our everyday existence. Right. And so it, it could be understood as mocking if you are deliberately picking on the circumstance of somebody less fortunate with you with the intent of gaining power. But that's not these memes. These memes are making fun of situations, right, by trying to bring to light either absurd connections such as the violinist playing uh, in the aisle. I would have never known that was a theme for the Titanic, right? Or uh, less familiar things uh, that have been brought up. So uh, one of the things I've seen is a CDC page of uh, illustrated instructions on how to wash your hands, and people are uh, repurposing song lyrics to fit each panel, right? And so while that may be seen as disrespectful to the CDC's intent of passing on credible information, it's much more interesting to understand it, much more profitable to understand it. Uh, Twitter is particularly suited to this. I, I argue for Twitter as a space for catharsis, right? And so meme culture on Twitter and other social media picks up on that rupture and finds that brief moment where it can make fun of something or make light of a situation that's really serious in ways that people can relate to. Well, obviously, people have been using humor to deal with tough situations, the whole laughing just to keep from crying thing for a long time. How do you compare how these are circulating to pre-meme life? I think that pre-meme, we had all of these same impulses, right? The, like, gallows humor you can tell from just from the name of it, like referring to a very ancient kind of execution method that um, this is an impulse that we've had for a really long time. What's what's changed in the modern era is that we're able to share in each other's experiences a lot more easily, quickly and widely. And so it's a pretty striking event in that it it's affecting so many people uh, around the world where usually the internet's focus is a bit more divided along, you know, language and and national borders. But this is something that's sort of brought everyone together in a way that feels a, a bit unprecedented. Uh, did you want to pick that up, Andre? Um, I try to define, define memes as separate from virality. So we've always had memes. Before Dawkins published The Selfish Gene, we used to call them crazes or fads. Mm. So if you if you think about the ways that dance dances used to spread during American bandstands or Soul Train's heyday, we've always had shared cultural moments that people seem to spontaneously pick up without being prompted. Right. The difference is for social media is that that additional element of virality, where, as Emma says, something gets picked up quickly, gets shared widely and seems to be effective, not EFF, but affective. So emotionally resonant for many people. And so I try to distinguish between the two. I'm speaking with Dr. Andre Brock, associate professor at Georgia Tech who studies digital technoculture and emigre Ellis, staff writer at Wired, specializing in Internet culture and propaganda. One of the realities, however, of our digital life is that our social media feeds are built to match our existing interests and biases. So do information silos impact the kind of memes we see and the information we're going to get about coronavirus? 
uh, a couple of years ago, Pew Internet and American Life did a survey, and they looked at two population groups, whites and blacks, and how they viewed information on social media. What they found was that black folks tend to see content that is racial or post content that is racial three times more than white people. And in some ways, you can understand that as a silo. Right. Because white folk are intentionally choosing not to look at content on race. But I prefer to think of it as people have certain interests around which they coalesce. Right. And so we always will have in group and out group understandings of different information things. Silo, in some cases, is too strong a word to explain how information circulates within within members of a particular group. The way we think of meme culture and how it gets passed around is based very much on how people interact with each other in the out in the world. Do memes carry a different kind of power when people are not getting as much face-to-face interaction? I was speaking to a woman who specializes in conflict resolution yesterday, and she compared posting on social media during this outbreak to a kind of sophisticated version of prisoners tapping back and forth on their jail jail cell mm-hmm. walls to communicate with each other. Um, I, I think that there is something super crucial about staying connected for any human at any time. And, and now that we've become more isolated due to safety concerns, I think this is all the more important. And I think that we've seen that, right? There's an explosion of, of memes and contributions to internet culture simply because people have more time, but also because it feels necessary. We've also seen some celebrities get criticized for jokes or tone-deaf comments about coronavirus. Emma, what kind of backlash have you seen to that online? Generally speaking, two categories. There's some people who've made, you know, jokes about, like, spreading coronavirus casually, like Prince William, who they've been criticized by people who have suggested that they should be using their platform to spread positive, helpful information rather than make light of a situation that is obviously very serious. And then the latter category is people who have made jokes that are racially tinged or just out and out racist. And that's come from a a couple of YouTubers uh, and someone on Howard Stern's show made a a racist joke about the Korean boy band BTS um, spreading coronavirus and people have reacted to that quite negatively, which I think is correct. Mm Mm-hmm. But we also have so many things that have opened up while people are trapped inside. Uh, The New York Public Library is making 300,000 books available. The Met is doing free performances. John Legend did a performance. What are you observing about the way that people are reaching for not just humor, but something edifying during this trying time? I think that uh, in my work, I argue that the internet has become our communicative infrastructure. And by that, I mean, we really depend on it for everyday activities. And we really only notice it to a certain extent when it breaks. So if your browser takes too long Mm -hmm. to load, or in my case, if my internet service has gone down and I can't play my Call of Duty, right? Uh, And so I think that the internet has done something remarkable in this particular case, where people who have been asked to stay home in their far-flung suburbs or in their urban locations are now able to connect using resources, this particular resource in ways that they hadn't before. The addition of public institutions and some privates, like some some places have offered free trials of their service. Um, and the, the addition of those public institutions offering ways for people to distract themselves, I think is building what I really would love to understand as a mutual aid society where institutions, people, and the government come together to provide comfort and aid and grace 
right, to people who are otherwise not able to do those type of distracting things for themselves on an everyday basis. So in some ways, it's a really beautiful thing to see. And I'm hoping it's something that we can retain in some reduced form after this, where we can continue to see uh, institutions and the like make resources available to people who normally would not be able to take advantage of them. How about for you, Emma? I think that's a really lovely sentiment. I would also like for that to happen. (laughs) I really do think that this is a chance for us to all pull together around the stuff that's important. And the internet is a great tool for doing so. And I think that everyone should be looking at things they see online with a certain amount of skepticism, but also, you know, embrace the warmth where it is because it's certainly there. Emma Gray Ellis, staff writer at Wired, specializing in internet culture and propaganda. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And Dr. Andre Brock, associate professor at Georgia Tech who studies digital culture. Thank you. Thank you as well. As we head into a break, we're going to play the viral remix of Cardi B's coronavirus reaction video, which my two millennial producers describe as, quote, an absolute bop. So you can trust them. (laughs) You can find that and more viral memes on our website, gpbnews.org. And stay with us for a new documentary about an Atlanta public housing project, which airs on GPB next week. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. We're all paying close attention as the coronavirus pandemic sends global markets tumbling and ushers in an era of social distancing. For many, staying out of public places has been an opportunity to rekindle familial ties or find creative ways to stay connected to others. Those communal bonds are at the center of East Lake Meadows, a public housing story. It's a documentary about the once infamous Atlanta public housing project that opened in 1970. Residents remember when it was a safe place to live, but now they fear for their lives. People just living here on borrowed time. We were all saying that they need to do something about this place. East Lake Meadows became known as Little Vietnam, degraded by disinvestment, concentrated poverty, violence, and crime. But it was also home to hundreds of families striving to build a better life. Well, if you need a break from the news, or if you're looking for a powerful story while holed up at home, the documentary airs on GPB TV on March 24th at 8 p.m. Just before COVID-19 put the brakes on life as we know it, I spoke with former resident Lawrence Lightfoot, who is featured in the film, and filmmaker Sarah Burns, who with David McMahon directed and produced East Lake Meadows. Burns has produced other notable PBS documentaries, including the Peabody Award-winning The Central Park Five. I asked her why she decided to tell the story of an Atlanta public housing complex. Yeah, I mean, this is thematically actually relates completely to our other films. It deals with the the larger systemic issues, questions about segregation and racism that that play into so much of our lives and, and our experiences in this country. And so we were interested in this story because it gave us a chance to get into that. And we're, we're storytellers. That's what we do. Mm. And this was an, a really terrific opportunity to, to dive into this one place and let people tell their own stories and for that to become the kind of center of something that allows us to ask much bigger questions about our housing policy, about the history of public housing, about the history of housing segregation, kind of how we got here. So, Lawrence, for you, you lived in East Lake Meadows. Why did you want to be part of this documentary? Well, you know, it's 
It's part of my history. You know, it's part of what makes me Lawrence. I grew up there. You know, I lost a lot of friends over there. You know, the story needs to be told. It really does. And, and uh, any hesitation on your part at all? No, not at all. You know, we want to tell our story. You know, you get an opportunity to tell your story, you don't have to worry about somebody else telling it. You can, you can get it right. And most of the time when they're doing documentaries, you know, they don't do them from, from the perspective of the people who actually live there. And then this story, you know, it's, it's a story. You could have done it on any project in the country. Yeah. But the, here's the deal. It's the same problem for everybody, regardless of what project they live in. I want to get to that kind of idea of housing policy, how it has evolved in the U.S. And the documentary gets into the history, certainly, going all the way back to the Depression era when policies were first created for the quote-unquote projects, but only for some Americans. Here's urban planning historian Lawrence Vail, one of the many people that you speak to in the film. Public housing has always been both a financial proposition and a moral one. It becomes a window into race relations, and it's a way of understanding the level of compassion there is for those who do need some assistance. So I want to pick up on the racialized nature. The federal government regarded public housing as a a temporary place for, at that time, majority white families until they were able to afford their own place. And Sarah, as you cite in the film, and we've discussed on this program, certainly between the 1930s and 60s, 98 percent of federally subsidized housing loans went to white Americans. So what did that mean for black families? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think a lot of people don't know the the origins of public housing. And so it was great to be telling an Atlanta story because it gave us this opportunity to go back to Techwood Homes, which was the first federally funded public housing project of this type in the country in the 30s. And as you said at that time, it was segregated by the federal government, creating segregation in a neighborhood that wasn't fully segregated before. And this was mainly meant to benefit people who were going to be temporary, that it was going to be a step up back into the middle class in many cases for people who had fallen out during the Depression. And over the course of the middle of the century, what we saw was this transition where we, the federal government, we helped white families climb that ladder. We gave them federally backed mortgages so they could move out into suburbs that were being built and that were being restricted so that black families could not follow. We built highways. We spent all this federal money on highways to bring people out to the suburbs. And then we kind of put the gates down and said that that black families could not follow. And so what we're left with is cities that were where the public housing comes to serve primarily African-American families, not in every city, but in many cities that was the case, and a much lower income population. And we stop investing in that. We stop caring about those people, and these places begin to fall apart. Right. And so, of course, in Atlanta, there is the added element of segregation and desegregation. There's white flight going on. But back in, let's speed up to the 60s, the East Lake was home to some 8,000 white Americans and just nine black Americans, probably people who were working for them and their families. By the end of the decade, the East Lake neighborhood looks completely different. How'd that shift it? Yeah, I mean, and that's white flight. And this is Lawrence's family's experience, too, when his aunt moved into Kirkwood just next door. Immediately, there's first sale signs going up and white families are leaving. Um, and, and we see that white flight all over the city. And certainly in the East Lake neighborhood, that's what happened. And so, again, you're left with this neighborhood that's had a complete transition. And that's why it becomes a place where the city decides to build a new housing project in 1970. Well, let's hear from just one of the residents during that transition who was not really happy about her new neighbors. 
Well, I hate to leave, really, but uh, I feel like that I'm out of place, you know, living in this community. Do you feel that your attitude could be changed to make you want to stay here and live among blacks? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not uh, prejudiced. Uh, I just as soon, you know, live here as live anywhere else. But I don't want to be the only white family living here. You see what I mean? You always know something bad's coming when someone says, I'm not prejudiced. But. The (laughs) but is the important part. Well, Lawrence, your aunt Gladys did. She was one of the first African-Americans to move to this Eastlake neighborhood. Do you have memories of that time or to the reaction to the projects? Well, she was one of the first in my family to buy a home of my mother, brothers, and sisters. So sort of was a routine thing. You know, somebody buy a house, everybody get in the car, go over there and see the house, you know. And uh, when we got over there, for sale signs all up and down the street. Yeah. They were giving them away. Lawrence Lightfoot there. He's a former resident of Eastlake Meadows. And just one of those featured in a new film called Eastlake Meadows, A Public Housing Story. I'm speaking with Sarah Burns. She is co-director and producer of the film. So you mentioned that this became the the site of Eastlake Meadows, the housing project. Why was that chosen of all places? Yeah, I mean, the the site actually had been the second golf course of what was in the Atlanta Athletic Club that became the Eastlake Golf Club. And they sold it off because they were also leaving the city. It was part of that white flight movement. You know, they put it there both because that was cheap land to use, but also because it was on the edge of the city. This was in 1970. We're talking about a time when, uh, by then, the population in public housing was that lowest income, mostly African-American population. And so the city was not interested in having that front and center in the middle of the city. And so this was an isolated location as this neighborhood transformed on the edge of the city, little public transit, um, where we could just kind of push the problems that were inevitable there and ignore them. Out of sight. However, there were many people who were thrilled to be moving there. Here's Beverly Parks from the film describing her family's experience. We had actually three or four bedrooms, which we had never experienced that. So when you come from an environment of no food, no heat, cold, to a housing project, that was just like heaven to us. Lawrence, how did your family end up moving to Eastlake Meadows? Well, it happened uh, when our house caught on fire and my, uh, basically we didn't have anywhere to go. Mm. So they uh, placed us there. And uh, when we first moved there, like the lady said, we thought they were nice. They were brand new. They were the rooms were large, and uh, I said, "Wow, this this is okay." And then, like I always say, about thirty six months later, I changed my mind <laughs> because they were not okay. Well, well, let's get to that. What happened there? There's this it's isolated, as Sarah mentioned. It's probably not a lot of you ways know, to when, get out if you don't have when a car. You live on a street in a regular neighborhood. You'll get to know your neighbors, a few people you go to school with. When you live in the projects, everybody's your neighbor. So you don't know whether this guy is a good guy or a killer. So you have to establish a pecking order. Mm-hmm. So in the process of establishing that pecking order, a lot of killing took place. Yeah, and it became known at some point in the 70s as Little Vietnam because of all of the violence. That's right. The, the cops wouldn't go there. Cabs wouldn't go there. Few grocery stores or banks, which happens so often in poor neighborhoods. 
But there's also in the film your your sister Barbara. You mentioned mm-hmm. some people mm-hmm. in your family, and your brother Elgin mm-hmm. are, is also in the film. He shares the story of watching a man take his last breath in yeah. front of him when he was yeah. a kid. Yeah. Is that something he ever talked about with you at that time? So it's been so long. We sort of when it happened, it was bad. But it was so many bad things that happened. I think when I saw my buddy get his face almost blown off, and mm-hmm. I was standing about three or four feet from him. I don't know. That was just as bad as getting killed. Well, what did, what did that do to your sense of being in the world? I mean, obviously, it didn't feel like a safe place. Well, it was established long before that that it wasn't a safe place. Yeah. And then uh, this new phenomenon hit Atlanta. That was when cars would come through the projects. Guys would run down through the cars, so, and they would sell drugs, whatever mm-hmm. product they were selling. So that's when the violence really ramped up. You know, understand what I'm saying? Because you got drugs. You got money, and you got ignorance. Yeah. So you got a lot of killing, you know. You well, know, I, I think it, so, it sounds to me like it's a very zero-sum game, right? You know, you're all arguing for the same small piece right, of right. pie in some kind of level, and that never does good things to human beings. But one of the things that we also hear, your sister Barbara says, you know, when you're poor, you make your own fun. So we hear certainly the headlines about, you know, how horrible and scary it was. And there's plenty of television news to to speak to that. But so what is it that people don't get about that kind of communal life? I'll just say that when we started talking to residents, we spoke to hundreds of residents, former residents of East Lake Meadows, and so many of them said, but are you going to talk about the good stuff? Hmm. Because so much of the coverage, the treatment of East Lake Meadows has always been about that one thing, about the violence, about the crime, about the drugs. And, you know, the cameras only come in when they're following the, you know, SWAT team of police officers knocking down the door of a drug dealer or something like that. And that has been the narrative about East Lake Meadows. And while that stuff is true and that happened, as Lawrence has said, there was also the ways that this community pulled together, not in spite of, but because of these difficult conditions and kind of created um, a, in many ways, a really strong community um, because they had to, because the government wasn't there, because the social services was, weren't there. And so you have someone like Eva Davis, you know, she's going to advocate for the residents and and be this leader in the community. And so there's this amazing pulling together. And I, I mean, I'm sure Lawrence can speak to this also, but we heard so many people say, you know, don't forget about the good stuff, the happy times. That was there, too. And also say uh, you can't speak about East Lake Meadows without talking about Eva Davis, who you mentioned, who became mm-hmm. an ad- a tireless advocate. I mean, you follow this this film for, for decades, obviously, and she just keeps on going out there. Mm-hmm. But that gets to this idea of the matriarchal power that we see playing out over mm-hmm. and over again in East Lake Meadows, this network of grandmothers and aunts looking out for each other's kids. Lawrence, how did how did you see that play out? Well, you got to realize now, it's sort of systematic. If you had a man living in the house, you wouldn't be living in East Lake Meadows. Nearly everyone there was a poor black mother that had children and no man in the house. So what happened if you had a man in the house, more than likely we were going to do what? You would be disqualified Mm -hmm. because you would have been what? You may have some. Above the poor threshold of the minimum wage. Right. Now, as far as the mothers, there were some good mothers out there. Then there was, to me, it was some bad mothers, you know. They tolerated their sons selling dope, you know. But when you've been poor your whole life, although my mother wasn't that way, I understood. I want to get to your mother because your mother was determined to move out. She was going to get her own house. Yes, she was. 
so many stories of people who are unable to do that. How was she able to do well, that? Well, I helped my mom move out of the project. But let me tell you something my mom did. My mom was a maid. And my mom told me then when we moved in the project, she said, I'm going to move out of East Lake Meadows. I want me a house. I'm moving out of East Lake Meadows. And like I told them, I helped my mom. I moved my, basically moved my mom out of East Lake Meadows. I had promised her when I was 15 years old, I'm going to move you out of the projects. So I did everything I could, and I got her out. And she didn't move in no mansion now. She moved in a fixer-upper that needed a lot of work, but it was a house. But you, even after your family moved, you kept going back to East Lake Meadows every because day. that's where all my friends were. Uh. But see, people don't understand is they were good friends, and they had dreams and hopes just like anybody else. They just happened to live in the projects. I knew some people in the projects that were better than some people that didn't live in out there. They were good people. So there was a lot of good people out there. But you had so many people in a concentrated area, and the news is not going to report. I mean, it's nothing to report about a good person in the project. Eva Davis got their attention because she was connected, and she wouldn't be quiet. Well, she was quiet. complaining, too. I mean, she— well, And Jose Williams lived about two blocks over. That helped, too. Yeah. You know, he walked with, marched with King and Abernathy and all of them, you know. So, you know, and she made enough noise that she got their attention. They had to respond to her. She may not have gotten everything she wanted, but she, she made it a little better for a lot of people. We're going to take a short break and be back with Lawrence Lightfoot. He's featured in the upcoming film called East Lake Meadows, a public housing story, produced and directed by my guest, Sarah Burns, along with her husband, David McMahon. In addition to the amazing footage, there's terrific soundtrack. So we're going to be playing some of that as we go out. This is The Staple Singers. I'll take you there. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott in my improvised home studio today. We're picking up on the conversation from before the break about East Lake Meadows, a public housing story. It's an upcoming PBS documentary about one of Atlanta's most infamous projects, which housed low-income residents from the start of the 1970s through the end of the century. The film was co-directed and co-produced by my guest, Sarah Burns, daughter, by the way, of beloved director Ken Burns. It airs on GPB TV this coming Tuesday, March 24th at 8 p.m. Right on time for people looking for stories of social depth at a time of social distancing. Sarah was in Atlanta and joined me in the studio last week along with Lawrence Lightfoot. He's a former East Lake Meadows resident and is featured in the documentary. I wanted to get a sense of how East Lake Meadows was covered in local news, especially during the crack epidemic, and pulled some of the footage from the film. In Atlanta, there's a housing project where drugs are rampant. There's so much gunfire, the post office sometimes refuses to deliver the mail. Yet another child, the second in two years, has died at East Lake Meadows, a victim of the violence associated with the sale and use of illegal drugs. Well, let's just establish that crack existed in neighborhoods across the country, but we heard a lot more about drug use and the violence in areas of concentrated poverty. But this is also dovetailing in the 1980s. We're seeing a a growing national trend towards, let's say, resentment of the poor. Uh, Ronald Reagan is the president calling out welfare queens, a myth that was debunked even then. Sarah, how does this start to play out into those public perceptions and policy? Yeah, absolutely. This conversation that sort of begins in the 80s and, and is reacting in part to these conditions getting worse and worse in places like East Lake Meadows and elsewhere, especially as the crack epidemic sweeps through them as it did in cities across the country, 
you get politicians on both sides of the aisle talking about welfare in general as being something that's not a good investment for our country. Um, And so that begins an effort both to reduce welfare benefits and how we do that, but also a kind of anti-public housing movement, an idea that these concentrations of poverty are bad and therefore we need to get rid of them. And that really begins in Atlanta um, with the demolition of Techwood and Clark Howell downtown and followed soon thereafter by East Lake Meadows, this idea that we have to just get rid of these areas of concentrated poverty and, and really start over. Mm-hmm. But there were investments made in more policing in East Lake Meadows, but not necessarily in social programs. Did, did, did you learn much about the process of that thinking? Yeah, I mean, what's happening is you have this war on drugs sort of nationally that's that's happening there at that time. And so you see money that's going towards policing, but it's not the policing that the residents of Eastlake Meadows have been asking for, calling for people like Eva Davis who are saying, we need this. And instead of getting the help that they need that's going to keep them safe, what it is is this sort of crush of, you know, these sort of SWAT teams that essentially terrorize the community. Even the law-abiding citizens there found that that scary um, and not helpful. And so you don't ever see that help that people need that they're asking for. And the other social services, the other things that people need to have a healthy community, access to jobs, access to transportation, any of these things that will help people have a healthy, thriving community are not being provided. And so it's this is a place that is set up to fail. And then we decide that we have to tear them down without ever really talking about why they failed in the first place Mm. and and whose fault that was. We tend to blame the people who live there for those problems as if it's their fault that the housing's not being maintained when it's actually the government that's supposed to be doing that. Lawrence, I'm wondering for you, did you ever, you know, want to hide that you lived in East Lake Meadows? Did that ever come up for you? When I was a young man, single, the worst thing you could do if you met a young lady, you could tell her you lived in East Lake, but you better not say metal. <laughs> I'm just saying. That would be the buzzkill. <laughs> oh, yeah. If she was from East Lake Metal, that's different. But you, you sort of feel people out before you tell them. And then, you know, even today, you know, as old as I am, if you tell people that you grew up there, they sort of look at you kind of side eye. I went to a function with my wife. My wife is a PhD. And, uh, you know, they started talking about growing up and stuff. And then they started talking about neighborhoods. And I said, yeah, well, I lived in East Lake Meadows. When I said that, one lady turned around and said, you lived in East Lake Meadows? Now I'm thinking, that's 30 years ago, 20 years ago. I mean, it shouldn't matter now, right? But, you know, that's... That's how the public felt about it, Mm -hmm. you know. Well, that's something we hear from people, you know, like how hard it is to be poor and to be looked at in that way. And and by the the late 80s, early 90s, we began to see this renewed interest in building up the city of Atlanta, certainly. 96 Olympics are changing the image, right? And and the years that follow, people want to move back into the city. Uh, Sarah, so part of this new model for living is mixed-use developments. You know, you have Mm -hmm. businesses on the first floor, residents on the second and third. So you have some streets life, mixed income housing. How does that, what does that solution offer? Well, I think the idea, the concept behind transforming this community into a mixed income community was that when it was a low income community exclusively, when it was this area of concentrated poverty, it was very difficult to get those social services in, both because the government wasn't sort of investing in them, but Mm -hmm. also because it wasn't seen as a safe bet 
for businesses either. And so I think one of the ideas about the mixed income was that if you have this mixture, you're going to get grocery stores, you're going to get banks, you're going to get all these things that a community needs. You're going to get a health center. And just the idea, I mean, everyone had kind of agreed at that time that concentrated poverty was a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And there were different reasons why people believe that and different solutions that they saw, but everyone kind of agreed that this was bad. And so this idea of mixed income seemed like a great solution to kind of solving these problems. But of course, it's a little more complicated than that. So about this time, this is the mid-1990s, uh, Renee Glover becomes the head of the Atlanta Housing Authority. Not an easy job, certainly. Um, in few choices, that they might rehab the existing housing units in Eastlake Meadows or replace it, uh, tear it down and replace it. Lawrence, you, were, you weren't living there at that time, but do you remember hearing conversations about whether or not to tear down Eastlake Meadows? Well, I'm going to tell you, the first sign I knew it was really real is when I started talking to some of the people out there, and we found out they would just had started kicking people out. So what happens is if, you, if we kick you out, then we're not obligated to move you back. And then they had another tactic in place. When you build them, you give them money and a voucher, but the rent is so high. If my mom had seven children, and she's making the minimum wage, and you give her a $600 voucher, okay, once she pay the rent, what are we going to eat? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they had to know that most of the people, even if they offered it to them, they were not going to be able to afford to live there. So it was, I think it was in the grand design. Well, I'm sure Renee Glover would not say that it was in the grand design, certainly. I don't certainly. agree with Renee Glover. Right. I don't agree with her. Um, but, but what would she have said? I mean, how, what kind of promises were made to people? And I also thought it was interesting that they actually let residents vote mm-hmm. on whether or not to tear down Eastlake Meadows, which, you know, they don't own these units. Did that seem to you like a real effort to involve them mm-hmm. in the process? Yeah, I mean, the residents, there, there was a committee of residents led by Eva Davis. Of course. <laughs> uh, of course, um, who negotiated and talked over the course of more than a year about what this new community was going to look like. And they brought it to the larger community for Mm -hmm. a vote. Um, And people voted overwhelmingly for this plan to tear it down. But then there were issues along the way. I think some of the residents, Eva Davis included, did not feel like promises were being met in terms of the phasing and how many people were coming back. And yes, some people did come back, but a fairly small percentage of the original residents returned to the new community. To the new community. Um, it, it was ultimately torn down, as you said earlier, but part of the thing that you get, besides these stories from people, they give you their own videotapes, and there's there's like a video club in yeah. one of these schools. And I have to play this tape of some students given a video camera to document the end of East Lake Meadows. Here's just a little clip. East Lake, East Lake. Better get ready to move. Where you gonna go? When I tell East Lake down. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> but they are, you know, they, they're demolishing people's homes. What is it like to, for people to see their homes torn down? Well, you know, uh, they didn't own them, like you said. Right. But still, they live there. But you know what? People make the building, right? People make the community. So it's like your community is disappearing. And, you know, even as the lady said earlier, she didn't want to be the last white person in East Lake Meadows. Even a lot of person didn't want to be the last poor person there either. You know, and then you look around and all of a sudden you're down to two or three builders. And most of your friends are all over the place or people you know, you know. And that's, I think, why when they had the first East Lake reunion, I think that's kind of what spurred it. Mm -hmm. 
and we had it at East Lake Park. We had two of them. The first two, they were great. They were just great. And then uh, they wouldn't let us have them at East the Lake Park. Na- the anymore. neighborhood wouldn't let you have it? You know how that works. They, we're from East Lake, lived there 25, 30, 40 years, but we can't have the East Lake reunion at East Lake Park. Lawrence Lightfoot there, a former resident of East Lake Meadows, and also Sarah Burns, who's co-director and co-producer of the film East Lake Meadows, a public housing story. Lawrence is certainly speaking to how the neighborhood has changed, you know, how it is certainly gentrified like so many different neighborhoods of Atlanta. Where did people go? Yeah, people went all over. People really scattered. And so some people came back to the new community. Um, A lot of people remained in the Atlanta area, but many people ended up outside of the city. Um, from, you know, just outside the perimeter to Stone Mountain. Yeah, all over the place. And so the community really is fairly scattered now, though, as Lawrence was saying, there's still these kind of reunions. It's like a big family reunion of people who come back together again every year. We weren't able to see exactly, you know, how many people got Section 8 vouchers and how many people um, ended up living where and, on, in, you know, part of different housing authorities. Sometimes, right, you move to Decatur and now it's the Decatur Housing Authority if you're still part of the public yeah. housing community. And so um, many people moved to other public housing communities in Atlanta, mm-hmm. which then were torn down. Right. So they're now all gone. East Lake was one of the early ones to be torn down. And so there were some people who went through this process multiple times because they moved somewhere else and then... That place is gone now, too. The underlying themes here are many, but one is that people bring up that housing policy in US in the U.S. is racialized. And some say the, the federal government shouldn't abandon public housing altogether. But the record on managing and executing projects uh, hasn't been all that great. So what are some of the new models that people are turning towards? Yeah, I mean, there is this 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 mixed income trend has really continued. I mean, Atlanta was at the forefront of it, but it's continued in many cities, not all. The reality is that in a lot of mixed income redevelopments, what we see is that even the low income portion of those units the residents are of a higher income bracket than the people who lived there before. And what happens is that people who are the neediest, who need the most help and the most services, um, can get left out of that equation. I'm wondering for you, you you tell the story of a lot of people here, but you're telling a story that is not necessarily your own. So how does that add to the dynamic of the story that you're telling ultimately? Yeah, we're very aware of the fact that this isn't our story that we are white people making a film about an African-American community, that we are, I've never lived in public housing myself, that this is not my story. And that's something that we have to be aware of at all times in telling the story. Part of that is about, you know, we don't have a narrator in this film. We're trying to go in and find the narrative and find the residents and give them a chance to tell their own stories and let that create the kind of structure of the film around those stories. Um, And then it's also about our process where we bring in other people to look at the film, people with different perspectives and people who can help us think about the language, think about the structure, think about what stories we're telling. And, you know, because obviously there is we're, we're still shaping it, right? I mean, we're, we're trying to focus on these stories, but we're framing them in some way, right? And what we put in and what we leave out and what kind of context we add to it. And so we, we always want to have different voices come in the edit room throughout our process because we are very aware of the fact that this is not our own story. Someone else's home. And I'm, I'm just wondering for you, Lawrence, as we close, what is your notion of home? You know, this place that as imperfect as it might be, Mm -hmm. was your home? Home is where the love is. 
You don't look at the walls. You look at the people in the house. You know, my brothers, my sister, my mom, you know. I'm going to say 95% of the people people out there were good people. But you only heard about that small percentage that stayed in the news. You know, when the kids out there playing football in the street and enjoying themselves, no camera's going to be around unless somebody gets shot. This is supposed to be the country of dreams. Because somebody's poor and presumed ignorant does not mean they don't have dreams. Because they are not as educated as you does not mean they do not have dreams. They may have to go another route. And for some of them, this seems to be the only route. You know, but it it is what it is. It's a reality that we have to live with, but it's not right. Well, Lawrence Lightfoot, I really want to thank you for sharing your experience and uh, your time. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Lawrence Lightfoot, he is one of those who is featured in the film East Lake Meadows, A Public Housing Story. Sarah Burns, along with David McMahon, directed and produced the film. It is going to be on GPB TV on March 24th at 8 o'clock. There's more details. You can watch a trailer, which is terrific, at our website, gpbnews.org. Sarah, I want to thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having us. I appreciate your time. And we're going to, you know, on that theme, we're going to leave you with uh, Childish Gambino's Have Some Love, because why not? That's my daughter's favorite artist. Really love. Like many of you, the OST team is working from our homes, so the sound from my basement studio may not be what you're used to. But like people all over the world, we're improvising our way through this, and none of us will do it perfectly. We'd love to know how you're doing, too. What are you watching? How are you managing at home with the entire family? Or staying connected if you're home alone? We invite you to be in touch with other listeners on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're on Twitter, at OST Talk. And here's something new that GPB is doing to keep you informed, a web video series of quick interviews with experts. It's called What You Need to Know Coronavirus. Brief, easy way to arm yourself with fact-based information. We've recorded a couple already, and you can watch them at gbb.org virus. I am so grateful to work with producer Priya Mahadevan, supervising producer Amelia Brock, engineers Jesse Nyswanger and Jake Troyer, our intern Julia Sanders, and our executive producer, the unflappable Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. We're all going to get through this together. Thanks for staying close. Thanks for your time. This is On Second Thought. <laughs>